Hi, I'm Natalie Argarius, and this is the Urbanist Podcast, where we discuss news, information, and ideas about improving cities and quality of life. And I'm Ray DeBicke. In this week's episode, we're going to talk about trees and the best way to preserve them around Seattle. Stick around. We decided to take on this topic because for the first time in a long while, Seattle was actually able to pass some legislation related to tree protection. On Tuesday, uh, March 29th, the Seattle City Council passed a bill that requires tree service providers be registered with the city in order to operate. This had been um, a step that was sought by the Urban Forestry Commission for some time because unlicensed arborists can cause a lot of problems, um, property damage, injury, whatnot, while removing trees. Um, But there's also an industry of predatory cutting that exists in which these unlicensed companies um, approach people and say, you know, you need to trim or remove that tree on your property because it could pose you a potential liability down the road. A long time ago, I actually worked in permits on the other coast, and there were a handful of not quite as predatory tree companies, but they definitely hopped onto people's lands, told them the wrong stuff to do, and also cut down a good number of trees in shared areas in order to get people's satellite dishes to work better. So, Ooh, yeah, that definitely sounds like that's out of bounds. <laughs> It, it, it caused a little consternation. It, it got all the homeowners associations into a, uh, well, circular firing squad. So that's always fun. It The hope is now in Seattle um, will be protected or at least better protected from those kinds of predatory actions. Other aspects of this legislation, which was co-sponsored by two council members that are not always associated as being um, the closest aligned on the the uh, on the political spectrum, we have um, Dan Strauss of District Six representing the Ballard area. Mostly, he's representing me. That's fine. And Alex Peterson, who is the council member for District Four, representing Northeast Seattle. Oh, we'll be generous and just say Laurelhurst and the surrounding area. So Peterson has, you know, acquired a bit of a reputation as being an advocate for protecting the character of single-family neighborhoods, and some of his um, some of his advocacy related to tree protection on the council has been associated with that. But during the meeting in which the the vote took place, Deborah Juarez, the council president, really uh, highlighted the fact that the two had collaborated together to make um, to make this tree protection ordinance. The problem is that the majority of it faced SEPA appeal almost immediately. So, you know what, Ray, I'll let you explain SEPA appeal for a second. The SEPA appeal process is when a government or jurisdiction or any government deciding body uh, makes a decision that's going to have an impact. Uh, There are certain criteria that the state makes in order to say, hey, you got to slow down and really look at the impacts of these things. Um, Unfortunately, some of those uh, impacts can have, uh, we'll say, predatory delays, uh, but we'll also say that it's a good thing to stop and make the government say, hey, should we actually build a light natural gas refinery right next to a uh, neighborhood of color? That is a useful thing to stop and wonder, uh, to stop and analyze how we're doing. Uh, Sometimes, though, when it comes to these more elaborate uh, things, the 
The one that always comes up is the Burke Gilman Trail because that has gone back and forth and back and forth in SEPA delays in order to say just the most microscopic uh, impacts. And that's unfortunate. That does tend to be a predatory delay. So a SEPA appeal, sometimes the agency that is working on the decision uh, tries to, the agency that's working on the decision makes a determination as to whether or not they need a SEPA appeal. And this one seems to be a situation where the SEPA appeal was necessary, um, but they were trying to get around it, but we're back into SEPA mode. The Seattle Department of Construction and Inspections issued a determination of non-significance when it shared its draft of the proposed tree ordinance with the public. However, um, two appeals came in. Um, the first was actually from a group called Tree Pack, which is run by um, a Seattleite named Steve Zemke, who has been involved in tree, perfection, tree protection advocacy for some time. Uh, very shortly after the uh, draft was published, Tree Pack wrote a long blood blog post in which they outlined 21 different reasons to oppose it, uh, claiming that it would be insufficient for protecting larger trees, among other things. Should have just nailed it to the front door of Seattle Department of Inspections. I mean, that's the way you normally do these theses. Yes. There's so many overlaps between tree protection and uh, uh, anti-density movements that it's really hard to extract the two of them. So we'll put a button on that for the moment. Yeah, we'll come back to that later because there's a lot I want to say um, in regards to that. However, TreePack actually withdrew their appeal shortly after they filed it. And in looking in the records for why they chose to withdraw it, it's because they were followed very closely by the Master Builders Association of King County, MBAX, who filed a appeal for a totally different set of reasons. And Bax was concerned about the cost and delay that these new protections would present to developers. Treepack, in their description of why they withdrew, said they did not want to be associated with a profit-seeking entity and thus removed themselves from the appeal. However, they know that nothing is moving forward right now and they have nothing to fear. TREEPAC actually successfully appealed a previous attempt at making a tree ordinance back in 2018. So the current tree ordinance that we have right now isn't the newest thing in the world. How long has what we're dealing with uh, been in place? Uh, this is when things get um, complicated and for many people frustrating. We actually don't have an official tree ordinance. We have an interim ordinance that was passed back in 2009. It was put in there as a placeholder with the idea that we would be able to develop a more comprehensive uh, ordinance that would replace it shortly thereafter. That has never happened. And as you can see, with two parties coming at the issue from opposing sides with a lot of fervor, it's not, um, not too difficult to understand why we've failed to advance. One saying the master builders are saying, don't do this rule because it's going to make houses more expensive. And the other side is saying, don't do this rule because you're not saving enough trees. And they're both arguing against the rule from completely opposite points. I will say I find tree packs logic to be difficult to understand because there would be more protections in place under this proposed ordinance. 
And I don't really understand the rationale behind leaving in a policy that many people have deemed as insufficient, full of loopholes, and one that actually promotes in many instances the cutting down of trees because they're viewed as a liability. Now, you talked to Weston Brinkley of the Urban Forestry Commission over the summer, and they mentioned some of the real issues with this interim tree ordinance. And you said trees are a liability. How does that work? Yeah, so according to uh, Weston, as it stands right now, there's a lot of uncertainty related to trees. Developers don't know how the tree will impact their plans. Homeowners live in fear that the tree could inflict damage on their property. And as a result, it's simply the safer option to remove them. The situation we're dealing with right now is not, it's not terrible. I don't want to make it seem like we have absolutely no protections. We do. Um, in fact, some of the best uh, policy that we have related to trees in greenery uh, is the city's green factor, which is related to new development. When I spoke with Weston, he was very careful to point out that in many ways, new development has actually brought more trees into the city because it's the only time in which you can tear up pavement and plant trees. The policy requirements of the green factor as well are bringing trees into areas where they didn't previously exist, multifamily areas, even some industrially zoned areas. So the Weston was very careful to say that trees and density don't have to be presented in opposition. And in fact, as becoming as part of becoming a denser city, we can actually become a city with more trees. In dealing with the environmental impact statement for industrial lands uh, over the last few months, one of the things that kept popping up in their mitigation is that the, the environmental impacts, the uh, contamination, a lot of those things are going to improve because we're building new stuff and they have to stick with the new rules. And it sounds like trees, even though we're dealing with interim rules, trees are part of that, that under new rules, even the interim ones, it's going to be better than the situation that we've had for the last 40 years. <laughs> I mean, I think about it this way. Imagine a single family house that has a couple trees next to it, has a huge parking area next to it, and maybe a little bit of grass. If you replace that with multifamily housing that perhaps takes up more of the lot than the single family house previously did, but you know, you remove the parking area or you reduce its size and you use um, permeable materials to build it, you um, replace the trees or retain the trees. You know, if the policies are flexible enough, you can find ways to build around the existing trees. And then in general, you, you may actually have more space to bring in trees or other forms of greenery and have a situation that's improved. So becoming denser doesn't necessarily mean that um, it's going to result in a huge amount of canopy loss or tree loss. I think when it comes to the first thing about tree uh when it comes uh, when it comes to the first the first question i always have about landscaping and all of that stuff is are we going to get rid of gas-powered lawnmowers and leaf blowers we'll cover that at some other point in time what does a registered arborist got to do now so in order to become registered they have to 
demonstrate sufficient education and training, and they have to show that this is ongoing. So they can't simply say, oh, when we first incorporated and registered with the city, we met these requirements. They're going to have to continually prove that they're engaged in these training efforts. Continuing education for arborists. Correct. And I think as well, you know, part of it is just to make sure these are legitimate companies because there were so many fly-by-night operators that were coming in and, you know, conducting tree removals in irresponsible ways. This is meant to put a damper on that. The same place that I was doing permits, we had a tornado at one point in time. And the first thing that the city council did was say, look, everybody has to get a permit. They're free. Um, But it was just to make sure that we weed out people who... Uh, we're fly-by-night operators. The Is there a state registry for these folks, or this is the first type of thing? I'm not aware of a state registry. Okay. Um, there may be, yeah. I don't know. Home Improvement Commission. I guess, I guess trees don't fall under home improvement unless your house is in the tree. It's true. But, you know, <laughs> I think back to the fact that my homeowners association had to remove Um, three trees from our property that had simply grown too large for the space that they were in and they were um, too close to our neighbor's building. We were very careful to hire an experienced company. I can't imagine what it would have been like (laughs) to get people who didn't know what they were doing into that situation. That's how you end up on the Fail Army YouTube channel in order to watch a tree go... (laughs) If a tree falls onto a house and it's not videoed and put on the internet, does it actually crush a building? Yes. <laughs> I think the answer there is definitely yes. Uh, with that, I think we're going to take a break and come back in a minute. A lot of the discussion about trees circles around the idea of housing versus trees or development versus environment or profit versus the earth. But it's a lot more complex than that. When we start thinking about trees in cities, it abates so much heat. It makes the place beautiful. We are a tree city. Places get awards for being tree cities. Why does this have to be an actual competition between two diametrically opposed forces? I think one reason is because... We do have a scarcity of land in our cities, but it's not because we have too much land that's devoted to building or too much land that's devoted to green space. It's because we have so much land that's devoted to parking and right-of-way, all of which is pavement that sucks in heat and furthers that urban heat island effect. The unfortunate result, then, is that whenever we talk about adding density, which has a lot of environmental benefits and social benefits and economic benefits. I could go on and on and on. We, people start getting upset and thinking they're going to you know, lose trees as part of the process when if we didn't have so much of our cities paved over, we would have more space for everything, including trees. The city of Seattle has 3,500 lane miles of pavement that just the Seattle Department of Transportation controls. That doesn't include all the state highways or private parking lots or private streets um, all over the place. We keep ignoring the amount of space that we give up to cars. Um, When you have two lanes of parking on either side of a two-lane road, 
that's 50 feet of right of way, 50 feet of asphalt that could have a whole lot more trees put in it. And I also want to point out that it's pretty clear when you look at the distribution of trees in urban areas that there is absolutely an economic correlation between which areas, <clears throat> sorry, which areas have trees and which do not. Because trees do create a bit of uncertainty for the building and maintenance process. It can be expensive to have a tree. You have to prune it. You have to care for it. There's always the possibility that it could get sick and die or be damaged and you have to take it down. Wealthier areas historically have had the resources to design for trees, both to preserve them, plant them, cultivate them. Um, and they also have been willing to assume those risks, whereas development that has occurred in poorer areas has not. Um, because, you know, we live in a society where you see a lot of economic stratification that follows racial and cultural lines. The unfortunate byproduct of that is that in many areas that are majority people of color find much less tree canopy than other parts of the city. You can find that in Seattle and in cities throughout the entire country. It goes back to all of the stuff that we deal with with parks and services and ways that our city is divided north from south. That if you're in the north end of the city, we have plenty of great trees up here. We have plenty of great walkways. We have plenty of great parks. And then it tapers off as you go across downtown. And once you get into the south part of the city, there just isn't the access to as many as much green, figurative green, money, physical green trees as it as balanced as would be, as would be in a balanced city. And some of it, I think, just has to do with prioritization. We could, uh, we could create policies in which we have more flexibility in terms of how much or how little parking is required with developments, how far those developments have to be set back from their lot lines, how much those developments can cover lot lines and where. And if we were to make those requirements more flexible, it would be possible to build in a manner that both preserves trees and adds more greenery. There are dense cities all over the world that have developed tree canopies and a lot of greenery. Um, I think myself of Mumbai or Bombay in India, uh, which I was lucky enough to visit several years ago and spend a few weeks in. And that is a very dense city with a ton of mature trees and a ton of greenery. I can remember sitting on the balcony of a friend's, um, friend's apartment and looking out and all of the trees and the birds that I could see, it was lovely. And I mean, one of the true benefits of having trees in an urban environment is that we're natural creatures. We feel a desire to be connected to plants and animals. And so many psychological studies show that um, there's like a biophilic instinct that we have. We are less stressed. We um, are producing more serotonin or other, you know, positive feeling chemicals in our brains when we're around greenery. Um, so, so we should pr seek to preserve the benefits of that, but not to the exclusion of building dense, compact, environmentally friendly communities where, you know, we can actually get out and walk amid the trees rather than drive on super wide roads that may happen to have trees bordering them that we can sort of see as a blur out of our car window. 
All right. I feel I feel like I'm starting a rant there, so I gotta hold myself back. <laughs> All of your happy brain chemicals were going into that rant. That was yeah, very good. They, they they were they were going up and then they they dissipated <laughs> uh, quickly. But no, your point's exactly right. I mean, there's no reason in the world why one tree should be looked at by one house. Why in the world can't you have 20 different apartments looking at a group of 20 trees. I mean, when you build with good, smart density, you can have places where you can set aside for better trees, stronger stands of trees. I mean, we forget in Seattle that all of our mature trees are actually just shipped down to San Francisco and used to rebuild them that this place was laid bare for an entire century and we're getting back and unfortunately we when we were trying to regrow our forest in this city it came at the same time as cars and so the competition isn't between houses and trees it's between houses and tree on one side is houses with trees and the other side is cars and you can't have all three because you're going to fail. The other thing I want to point out is that trees are only one tool in terms of bringing greenery, expanding biodiversity, and improving the natural environment of a city. No place in the world, um, I think, does it better than Singapore when it comes to bringing greenery into their um, cityscape. They assumed the nickname the Garden City back in the 1960s. And since then, while being one of the densest cities in the world, they have continually sought to incorporate greenery into their built environment. And they've done it through so many different ways. They have green roofs, green walls, green stormwater infrastructure that's integrated into their roads and sidewalks. They've also, I don't know if you've seen these um, pictures, Ray, but they've created these enormous superstructures that um, I will include, in fact, a link to this or perhaps even a photo of this in the episode description. But there are these superstructures in which there are massive towers of greenery that collect solar power that are in the middle of their cities. And I'm going to just turn this so you can see it. But that is a real structure that exists in Singapore. They look like those, um, what are they, the baobab trees, the the ones that have, they're, they're upturned with roots going both down and up and it's such a lovely and sculptural thing it is and they started building these alongside other efforts to intentionally increase biodiversity they found that you know they had quite a bit of greenery in the city but not necessarily biodiverse greenery and the uh the building of these structures was a part of a oh and they're called super trees by the way, um, but was part of that effort. Very different than the blue broken tree that we have down at that power station off of Denny, that sculpture there, which is kind of eh, trying a little too hard to be something close to this and doesn't quite hit. Well, you know, it's missing any kind of greenery or, you know, organic life in it. That right away ding, 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 ding. makes it very different. But we do have we do have spheres. We do have the spheres, which have green things inside of them. And a locked door on the outside. That is true. I've only been one time, and it was because I was covering an event that took place there. I was a little disappointed when I went into the spheres. It um, it didn't have the feeling that uh, certain uh, conservatories or greenhouses have that are really dense in plant life. Um, that kind of smell, that that feeling of being among living things. I didn't quite capture that when I was there. 
um, the biggest indoor rainforest thing that I always think of is the National Aquarium in Baltimore, which went to on countless field trips over the years. And you're exactly right. It, you go in and there's that wave that hits you of not just moisture, but of kind of life. And I don't know, the spheres kind of miss it, maybe because it has the cafe in it and it's already set up for people to work also. Um, not quite the full-blown terrarium uh, arboretum that I've seen other places. You're absolutely right. Well, you know, it, trees are an interesting topic to take on because they're so much more controversial than you would ever expect. I worry sometimes that the controversy itself comes from the peripheral things that go on with them, that people who worry about housing see the tree concern as a backdoor way of stopping new housing from being built. And the folks who are concerned about the trees themselves see it as a complete advocation of our responsibility towards the earth. And neither of those and both of those can be absolutely true at the same time. It's a shame that everybody's inner Lorax has to come at the expense of everybody's inner desire to have a place to live. And there's so many different ways that we can actually combine the two and come out on the other side with a whole lot more houses and a whole lot more trees. And the last thing I'll add on this, which is not really new to anyone, but I feel like just deserves getting mentioned, is when we add infill housing to existing urban areas, we are preventing sprawl from creeping out into our very precious natural areas in this state. When you put up a building that has 20-odd houses on it, you're saving at least five acres of land that all the houses get built on quarter acre each. If that's not happening on the other side of Issaquah, then guess what? We get to go up the mountain and enjoy those trees. And there are some very good bus lines to take you to the hikes, too. Well, that's it for this podcast. The Urbanist does have an event coming up. Uh, Mark Doan, CEO of the King County Regional Homeless Authority, will join The Urbanist for a conversation on April 12th at 6.30. We will be talking about the organization's work, future plans, and how they deal with all of these suburban cities trying to get anything done about housing our neighbors. Register for the live meeting and get some questions in at theurbanist.org or catch up afterwards on our YouTube channel. Again, for more information, visit our website at theurbanist.org. And I also wanted to put forth the reminder that we do have our email address, which is podcast at theurbanist.org, and we welcome your feedback. So if you'd like to share your thoughts about trees, greenery, and how they exist in urban areas, we'd love to hear them. I don't think anybody has opinions about trees besides us. Well, we'll see. We'll see whether or not you prove Ray wrong. I'm Natalie Argarius. And I'm Ray Dubicki. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll talk again soon. Mm -hmm.